Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Vessalatu vesselamu ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi man wala. Welcome to another solo. And some of you have been asking uh, what's our schedule. And our schedule is that we're going to be doing every other week, uh, uh, twice a month with the group. Since as I mentioned last week, uh, Moin moved and may Allah bless his work and everything. But uh, we sort of need him back. But He's moving and he'll be back eventually. And in the meantime, though, we're doing these solos and each one of us is producing something. So at the moment, Moin is actually producing something really interesting, which I'm looking forward to here. Uh, and that'll come the week after we do another group podcast. And Alex himself is producing something, which also is going to be really exciting. So in the weeks between the group podcast, we're going to have these solos between myself and Moin and Alex in a, in a way to, to spread the work. So that's a little update. Uh, the other update is if you're in the tri-state area, if you're in the Northeast, mark your calendars for April 15th for the conference, uh, convert conference in which uh, we, we have uh, Sheikh Yahya Rodas, we have Sheikh Amin Muhammad, we have Ustad Isha Prime, and they're all becoming and, and doing a full day convert conference. It's very, it's really, it's really one of the most critical things to do. At least we do it once a year. And what it does is it connects people together. Our goal is to connect people together, to just open people's uh, door, or give, open a door for them regarding knowledge, what knowledge is about. It's not, I like, I don't like it to be a fluff conference. It's an actual real content conference uh, in which there are talks and then there are breakout sessions and the breakout session last year with uh, Tamara Gray we had Ustad Luqman and Sheikh um, uh, Mikhail Ahmed Smith they were all here last year and it was a great session the, the breakout sessions are huge so the connectivity is nice there's a little souk a little bazaar that people could go to and, and you have to understand a lot of people we ask them to bring their Muslim fam their non-Muslim families with them too so they've never seen any of this stuff a lot of them came for the first time they'd never seen any of this and it's amazing uh, with marketing. I'm, I'm not a big fan of marketing. It seems to me like it's sort of cheesy. It's, but it's actually really important. And marketing, you, you get the word out and you reach people. It's not, not every, all marketing is sleazy. And this, someone had recently made this observation. Uh, I think it was Nabil that not all, when, you, when you push hard on something, when you sell hard for something, it doesn't mean it's a sleazy product. Some people have this idea that if you're out there and you're trying to push your product, that it's got to be a sleazy product. Not at all. Who said that? Right. I mean, who's saying that? And the opposite, that if it's a really good product, then you don't need to market it. I'll tell you what a really good product that's not marketed is. It's unknown. It's a something. It's unknown. Right. I mean, think of the uh, Salah. There's nothing going to be greater in this world than Salah, right? And the Adhan is loud and everyone hears it. It's really hard to avoid something like Salah if you're in a Muslim country. You're never going to miss it, right? It's out there. It's public. That's why it's important to be out there and public. And anything good, anything wholesome uh, and righteous and good, you never have to keep it secret. Actually, you should keep it public. So the reason I said that is that some people had seen the program, uh, had seen the advertisement, and, and people out of the blue had seen the advertisement and had come out last year, and Allah Adam, what kind of um, reaction they got, but they stayed for the program, and they left. I wish I had talked to them. I'm sure some other people talked to them, but it's always good to do these programs, and really they're meant for the non-Muslims to come out, and in the books of fiqh, you find that they say that dawah, public dawah has to be done at least twice a year. So if you're a jama'ah, if you're like a masjid, community center, or even in, as an individual, you should be try to do something public and open at least twice a year, 
Right. And these days in America, at least we're in our parts in New Brunswick, this, the Dow needs to be in Spanish. We need, it's almost like a becoming almost Fad um, Kifaya for every community to have a Spanish speaking individual to take the Dawah to people in Spanish. When Where we go in New Brunswick uh, by the Walgreens, it's, it's all Spanish speaking and maybe 15%, 20% maybe English speaking um, African-Americans, uh, mainly African-Americans, and the rest is all Spanish. So the whole demography of uh, demographics have changed and the issue of Spanish has become a real issue that people need to learn and uh, people need to pick up. And the Dawa in the, the future Dawa, it, probably in this country and the whole Western Hemisphere, is going to be Spanish uh, speaking. It's going to be oriented towards the South, towards Central and South America. That's almost like the new frontier where people haven't gone. And people, uh, well, there are Palestinians there, there are some Pakistani communities there, but as a real concerted effort for Dawah, this is where it's at. Habib Ubaidullah, the father-in-law of Habib Omar, was over. He was in the tri-state area last week and on his way down to the Dominican Republic. So he went to Cuba last year. He went to the Dominican Republic the year before. Oh, sorry, this year he went to the Dominican Republic. So it's very clear that they're hitting that area up. And one of the observations is that these people are still much closer to the fitra than the city people up north. The wealthier classes and the city folk up north, the people in the south, they're struck by poverty. They, they have a lot of uh, more basic problems than what we talk about all the time here in the north. And they're open to, and they're also their fitra recognizes a kind person. And sometimes that's all it takes is to connect this deen of Islam to a kind person, which is something that we touched upon last week when we said that our dawah in repelling and at least opening, making a frontier, opening the frontier on the re repelling and making it mainstream, part of our mainstream doctrine and our mainstream policy to refel, repel reform, sorry, deform and regression movements, the uh, so-called progressive, which are really regressive, and the deform movements, so deform and, and regress, we need to make it a, a policy and a doctrine to repel this, to push it back, that this got to be item number one on the, on the agenda. The first item on the agenda, the number one point that we have to get across is how can you, you can't have a meal poured into a dirty plate. And that's what this reform uh, and prog progressive movements are. They're, they're sullying the plate. It doesn't matter how pure of an Islam that you pour into that plate. If the cup or the plate is dirty, then what you're going to get is dirty. So it's got to be item number one. And I think that it is moving up. I'm looking around. I'm seeing people talking about it. I mean, it's all over the place now. People are onto this train and they're realizing that uh, this thing has to be repelled. It's gone. Uh, it's becoming so obvious what it is. And a lot of people are now chasing the funding. They're looking at uh, or sorry, tracking the funding. And they're realizing that the people who are funding this, they're not people who have any interest in upholding the Sunnah or upholding actual Deen. And they're actually quite nefarious. So now being that as it may, we now realize that if we hit that point, if, we, if, if we've achieved that, well, what's next? What's next is that we want to get our message out to everyone. And in, in so doing, the attitude, the packaging, of our message now needs to take the next step. Now we have the we we have we can afford right now to start paying attention to the packaging. 
Well, before it was just getting the point across, right? And sometimes you had to do it in a bit of an aggressive manner just to, because it was just so infuriating what was going on. But now it's time to look at the packaging and it's time to look at it from a deep perspective. And the, the packaging of a Muslim, his character is deeply embedded in his soul. It's not something that he just learns. It's not some nice words. It's an attitude of Rahmah that he brings towards the people. An attitude of where, okay, we're not in the panic mode anymore. We can now take a deep breath and actually rectify our state. Some people talk about thinking before you talk. Well, we don't just think before we talk. We look at our state before we talk. Because if your state is good, it doesn't matter whatever words are going to come out are going to be good. So this, our state has to be one full of rahmah, full of giving people excuses, full of people, uh, full of accepting people's shortcomings, full of not uh, uh, trying to look at people's sins and not trying to look at the wrongs that they're doing and having that attitude of rahmah towards uh, everyone. And, and when we do that, then Allah Azza wa has that approach of rahmah towards ourselves and this is one of the first hadiths that it really the first hadith if you go to any hadith scholar and you want to study hadith with him the first thing he's going to say is we will the first hadith that his sheikh gave to him that his sheikh gave to him that his sheikh gave to him before that all the sheikhs give the first hadith Okay, ar-rahimun yarhamuhum ar-rahman man fil ard yarhamkum man fil sama with the hadith meaning uh, have mercy to those on the earth okay if you have mercy on those on the earth fil ard and fil ard does not just mean on the earth it means down those who are down those whose situation is bad those whose uh, understandings of things are flawed those who are in such mired in in the muck of life and in in jahl in ignorance and in compound ignorance that's fil ard those people who are mired in that, mired and stuck in their whims and passions, mired and stuck in their uh, ideas that are uh, misguided ideas. Have mercy upon them. Having mercy upon them isn't, isn't by confirming what they're upon, but in the way that we deliver our critiques and in the way, that, forget the way, the, our own attitude when we put forth our critique, our own attitude when we put forth uh, what we believe in and what we're uh, trying to, to tell the world has to come from a position of compassion. And if it doesn't, then really we might be getting the movement going, we might be getting it going, but it's not gonna go far. So getting something going is far different from now, the vision is to take this for decades forward. You see the difference? So when, you're, when you have a demoralized army that's not doing anything, you need anyone to step up and do something radical, right? Someone to step up and do something crazy to get everyone wake up again. But once, you, once your army's awoken, now at this point, and I hate to use the metaphor of army so that the uh, uh, DHS and Department of Homeland Security doesn't get worried. I'm, I'm talking about an allegorical, ideological uh, army uh, of ideas. And what we're talking about here is now that your army is, is in control, now we're, we're awake, what you need to do is now operate systematically like the Romans did. The Romans, they never had to use emotion in their armies. At a certain point, they just had a, a classic technique that was studied that everyone knew. It was so simple, so easy, and they did it to perfection. And you, you can see it out in the, in the old books. They basically started with archers who, who slung, and this is haram for us, but they slung uh, 
uh, arrows f with fire in them, and they slung fire cannonballs, like f not cannonballs, but uh, uh, catapults of heavy balls, you could say, and surrounded with them was hay, and they were lit on fire, and it was like a fireball, and they would catapult that over. The archers would fire fire, uh, arrows of fire, on the enemy, and that would put, to put the enemy in a complete disarray, absolute disarray. And then, once the, that settles down, now you have the army in complete disarray, people are on fire, their, their area is on fire, then the cavalry, go, uh, sorry, the infantry, on the foot soldiers march. They march in and they uh, do their damage. And then the third wave, by this wave, the army's half decimated, right? And thereafter, they, the Romans would come from the back, a legion from the back, coming with the cavalry. And once the cavalry comes from the back, that's the finishing blow. All right, so that's the finishing blow. And they had the uh, means to do that. They had the training, they had everything. And literally there are their wars or their battles would sometimes last an hour to two hours, a maximum of three hours, and they had decimated the enemy army systematically. And that's what we're looking at now. So now that we've ignited this, this mashallah movement uh, that I'm seeing of people who are putting deform and regress at the number one, as their number one priority, and recognizing it, and seeing the importance of aqidah, and knowing Allah created us, He knows best, pushing back this secularism. Recognizing it for what it is. Recognizing a moral statement for what it is. A moral judgment. When you see someone talking about rights, when you see someone talking about uh, uh, law, okay, and support, what we should support, all the, these are all moral statements. What you're saying or embedded inside of the statement is what's good and what's bad. Now, that's a moral statement, right? Well, who has the right to morality? Before we make any moral statement, right, we look at what Allah and His Messenger said. Okay? Uh, if you are, if you truly believe in Allah in the last day, then if you differ upon any issue, then return it to Allah and His Messenger. This is really Islam 101, the basics. If we're going to have a population at all in America, in England, in the West, and, and I think England is a bit more safer because they have a lot of numbers of Muslims there, and they have a lot of schools and a lot of hifl and scholars, more, way more than America, and they live in close-knit communities, uh, uh, even if they're not like purposeful, but they do physically live near one another, even if they didn't intend it, much more so than America. If we want to have any Muslims in the future, this has to be priority number one. It has to be a vaccine, and it's an article that I'm going to be releasing soon on Muslim Matters, and I'm getting a number of other scholars to talk about it with me and to, to be signatories on it, in which you just give a basic vaccine, like what is secularism really quick, and why is it that we, and what's our take to it, what's our approach towards it. And this is going to be a, uh, I'm trying to make it two pages, a lesson for Islamic school teachers, a lesson for Sunday school teachers, halakha leaders, or even just a, a, a mom and her family, or a dad and his kids who wants to share this with his family, uh, as a very simple thing that you know from your gut when you see something wrong, but you don't know how to articulate it, right? And all I'm doing is articulating in a very simple manner, right? So that's got to be priority number one. Now, as we move forward, this issue of akhlaq, character for us, our character is going to be really our number one ingredient. Our, uh, going forward, 
our number one ingredient is going to be our akhlaq. And our akhlaq, the best way to get it is not getting a book of akhlaq, not taking a course, not taking a class. It's company. It's the company that you keep. And I'm telling you, if you are living in one of these cities that doesn't have any scholars near it, that doesn't have any even elder students of knowledge, okay, you're going to need to travel. Travel and see them once a year. What's wrong with that? Take a four-hour car ride. Someone had talked to me from Massachusetts, right? Well, take, take, find a day and, 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 and travel out, take the car, drive four hours and sit in the company of scholars. And I want to read to you something here that was really important. And it's a book based upon Imam al-Harith al-Muhasibi. And it's given a commentary by Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda. And he says here that the effect of sitting in the company of the senior, very important to say senior, the people, the mashayikh who have been around the block. And it could be men or women who are in, who have spent their lives in knowledge. And I'm not talking one decade, two decades, three decades. I'm talking about someone who's been in this, on, uh, in this world for 30, 40 years. Because when you start, when the years start passing, and you're in the circles of seeking knowledge, and you're in the circles of the ubad, the worshippers, the people of dhikr, the people of Islam, the people who pray in the masajid regularly. I'm telling you, if you just have longevity amongst them, certain openings will come to you, and I'm talking about the opening of sabr, patience, hilm, hilm, the best word being uh, forbearance, being slow to anger, uh, you, should, you would know when leniency is to be applied, when generosity, the importance of generosity. Right? We think generosity and we calculate, should I be generous to him or not? Should I be generous to her or not? And we don't realize in generosity how important it is. And we don't realize the great importance of lutf. And over time you learn because all of your harshness is going to come back to us. And this is something I learned. Anytime that you're going to be harsh towards people, I guarantee you, it's going to come back to you. It's going to come back against you. And anytime you are generous or gentle with someone or forgiving, it's going to come back. And the scary idea that, the scary idea that uh, words, hurtful words, they find a place in the soul of the person you said them to. And they don't leave. It's really hard to, to unseat those hurtful words. It's going to take a lot of generosity to unseat or to displace hurtful words. And, and you can sometimes, you can hear it in a book, you can, uh, you can read it in a book, you can hear it in a talk. There's no real lesson other than actually experiencing it. And in order to avoid that experience is to sit with someone who experienced it and then they could warn you against it and you could just look at their character. So he says here that, this is because looking at a person who is worthy of emulation has a greater impact on the soul than listening about them. So more than listening about something or reading is sitting in their presence. And of course, our crutch is hearing their stories, reading their stories in the absence of such individuals. Okay. The companions of the Messenger وسلم, had a greater share in this regard for they sat in, their, in, in his company, they watched him and they were very close to him. They were therefore the best of mankind, chosen for the guidance of mankind after the leader of mankind, Sayyidina Muhammad Reason being, looking at a righteous person reminds one of Allah because of the effulgence, illumination, amiability, amicability, 
tranquility, love, and serenity, which one sees in his ways, his appearance, his humility, his speech, his silence, the bowing of his head, his movements, his remaining still, and in all of his affairs. So when you, see, when you sit with someone of greatness, you are absorbing, absorbing far more from nothing but just sitting with them. And I have been with a number of individuals, and I know that they are people of riyadah. Riyadah means spiritual practice. They're, they're trying to implement teachings. And you see it. And I have been with people that you cannot backbite in their presence. You just can't backbite in their presence. If you backbite in their presence, they shut off. They literally, they won't say anything. Right? But they'll shut off. They'll start looking away. They might start mumbling some istighfar. And if it gets really bad, they'll just get up. Maybe they'll stop you, maybe not, but they'll just get up. And I've seen it happen right in front of my eyes. Therefore, when a person looks at him, it reminds him of Allah. If they're seen, Allah is mentioned, uh, Allah is remembered. The appearance of this righteous person directs him to turn toward Allah Azza wa Jal. So these are the ones who, when they are seen, one is reminded of Allah. And also, when they are seen, it reminds us of our own pitfalls, downfalls, um, errors, etc. Okay? He continues, How goodness is imprinted on the hearts of those who sit in the company of the righteous. I'm saying again here, our character, and the character of a Muslim is not just learned behaviors. It is a deep spirituality that is, is fed by a constant and regular dosages of dhikrullah. And it has to be regular and it has to be much. Dhikr is one of those things in the Qur'an that is never mentioned by itself. It's always mentioned with an adjective of a great amount. The word kathira, much. And you'll find it all over the place. And you will find blame of little amounts of dhikr. They don't remember Allah much. They don't remember Allah except very little. And who are these? The hypocrites. Right? Allah describes the hypocrites. So a small amount of dhikr did not cure them of their hypocrisy. So dhikrullah is what calms the soul down, is what gives it sufficiency. You feel satisfied with what you have. More than satisfied with what you have. So what does that remove from you? Envy. And if you remove envy, you remove so many... Envy is like a root. If you remove that root, you remove so many other ills. Anger. Why do people get angry sometimes for a seemingly very little reason? Usually, it's they're angry, they're envious. Right? They have envy, and so they're lashing out because they're full of envy. All right? So if, you, if you're satisfied, and dhikrullah makes a person satisfied, if it is done in consistent high dosages, 35, 40, one hour, daily. And if you want to justify it, rationally speaking, rationally speaking, how much, uh, just count on paper how much time it takes to cook dinner, how much time it takes to eat dinner, if you take out 10 minutes from dinner, 10 minutes from uh, showering in the morning, you don't have to have one of these glorious long showers, okay? Just decrease from this, from this, from this, from this, you're gonna end up having time, right? And it's honestly one of those things that you just insist on. Everyone I talk to who's on Air to Goal, and I haven't gotten around to it yet, everyone tells me it's really great, it's really great for kids too, but I haven't gotten around to it. Air to Goal people tell me they're the busiest people in the world, but they tell me like that I haven't worked for three days in a row. Right? I've just been watching this show. They, they work from home. 
I haven't done any work for three days in a row. Or I've, I've been doing all-nighters. I, I met a doctor the other day who did an all-nighter, and she's an ER surgeon, right? She's like doing all-nighters on Ertugol, sleeping half an hour, getting up and going to work. So if people want something, and that's the key, you have to want it. You have to believe in it. And to want it, you have to believe in it. You have to believe that it's the cure. And oftentimes, you really just need to see someone. Okay, we could talk about about Vikr to were blue in the face, but you really ultimately have to see someone who is upon it and who is a senior and who's been around the block. And, and in Birmingham, the listeners from Birmingham, you have uh, Sheikh Ahmed Saad, who the nur is clear on his face. Mashallah, he's such a beautiful man and he's knowledgeable, he's scholarly, and he, he has this beautiful state to him that just makes you want to work on yourself just want to work on yourself because I'm telling you what we're trying to do is put forth a reasonable amount of knowledge that is both challenging enough to take a few years but also not too intimidating okay that, that people will be driven away and it's widespread and this sort of curriculum of knowledge is out there it takes you three four years to to uh to, to, take, to study it, to learn it. And in the process, though, you're, you're mixing and mingling with people who are working on themselves. And this knowledge is what's going to help us transmit Islam to the next generation and to keep it ourselves, right? And pass it on to our friends and push off these shubuhat. But as I've said, uh, as I've been saying, and not to keep repeating, but Imam al-Haddad actually really, and Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal also has a commentary, comment that he loves repetition. Right? And Al-Ghazali talks about it too, the importance of repeating the same idea. And it's that the number one issue is repelling these shubuhat, these false, these ideas that are poisoning our Islam, but at the same time, the people doing it, right? Which is, it's, got, it's, it's us, right? That's what we're doing. We've got to work on ourselves. We've got to make tawbah and repent for the times in which we've been thorny, uh, harsh, and because ultimately, people take from the example that they see more so than what the commentary that they're hearing. That's the reality. The people who take what they're hearing are those who are more cerebral oriented. But they're few and they're not going to be sufficient enough of numbers to carry a movement. They can lead a movement, but they can't carry a movement by themselves. You need the common person. Right? And, the, and the regular Muslim out there. And that type of Muslim is only going to take from someone who has uh, a beautiful heart, a soft heart, a gentle heart, a welcoming heart, a non-judgmental heart. He says here that the words of Rasulullah the person who, when you see him, he reminds you of Allah, narrated by Al-Hakim, uh, uh, sorry, narrated by Al-Tirmidhi. He writes, Hakim al-Tirmidhi writes, they are the ones who have obvious manifestations from Allah, the splendor of close proximity to Allah Azza the effulgence of his might, the awe of his greatness, the amiability of dignity have all overwhelmed him. Therefore, if a person looks at any one of them, he remembers Allah Azza because of the effects of divinity which he sees on them. One of the things about these, the, the qualities of these individuals that when they meet someone, they don't turn around and backbite them. That is the first one. They, when they meet them, they don't turn around and, and, and sort of betray their company by backbiting them. When they meet them and they see flaws, they know that they've seen a flaw. You can't avoid a flaw, but they try to convince themselves that it's really not them. It's uh, just that 
uh, accidentally this flaw got onto their character. It's not them. It's a leech that came onto their character. That's how I was taught to view flaw, the, the actual individual flaws of people, that it is a leech that latched on to a person. It's not the person himself. The person himself have, uh, is good. Ha, uh, whatever is good coming out of them, that's the real person. And the flaws that come upon a person, that's like a leech that came onto the person. Uh, we were also taught that when you see someone, uh, you firstly, you're not their controller, you're not their judge, right? Don't try to control the behaviors of people. Control is one of the biggest diseases of the heart. The desire for control, the love of control, is one of the biggest problems that people have. And if you want to have good character, actually don't be in a position of power as much as you can. Even though for good works, they're useful to be on a, a board of something that's good, right? To be in control of something, right? That's good in a worldly sense, but you have to be very careful. If it's public, if it's something public, I would, you know, be very hesitant. You don't want to be in control because control forces you to do things that you don't want to have to do. It forces you to do to be tough. It forces you to, to make rules on people. It forces you to to sometimes expel people. You have to, right? So it's it's it, it, it's tough on the character, and it's really meant for few people that their character they could do that, and 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 it won't have an adverse effect on their character. So not trying to have control. When we go as Muslims to any group to a masjid to a uh, community gathering, to an invitation to a home, to a conference. Anytime you're in a large group, envy and desire for influence and control rises in an individual. Sayyidina al-Khadr ibn Kathir tells us that one of the advice that he gave to Prophet Musa salam, is avoid the large groups of people. Avoid these these mass gatherings. Why? Because they elicit from people love of showing off, love of attention, envy. You start seeing everyone coming in their best form, and then you there's a leader, and you start envying that position. Avoid it completely, and be someone who would rather be powerless in the sense that not not having power, not having influence, and power is such a dangerous thing, and it's one of the things that the nefs loves. The nefs loves riyasa. And the works of the heart, they say the last thing to leave the heart of a scholar is love of being in charge, the love of being uh, the leader. And one of the things, and having the great influence and everyone's following, etc., etc. And one of the things that uh, we were taught is that Habib Omar says that if you want to check if you have envy, then see what you're doing. If someone else comes and does a better job, if you feel, oh, good. He's doing a better job. I can relax now, right? I can go and I don't have the responsibility on my back. He said, then you have a pure heart and your intention is pure. But if you start getting envious and you start fault finding and you start getting upset and you start having a competition, then know that your motive is corrupted. It's not, you're not just trying to do something good. You're actually now also full of envy and you're really wanting the leadership and you're wanting the attention of people. So we ask ourselves, if I was the least in this gathering, I mean, next time you go to one of these big gatherings, whether it's someone's homes, and sometimes these family gatherings are really good until they get too big. If the family gathering gets too big, or, or these uh, social gatherings, I mean, if the social gathering gets too big, you start to find people getting envious. 
And they're like, oh, look at this family. Oh, look at that. Oh, mashallah, this teenager has really blossomed to become some beautiful thing, right? And people start getting full of envy. And the moms and the dads, they all envy and everyone has desires, right? It's a disaster. Number one, I would pull myself out if it's really that bad. I would just leave. That's number one. But if you can't leave, also too much if you just... If you just leave all, all the time, you're not facing the problem, right? So on the one hand, if the gatherings are really big, then you could uh, avoid them. There's health for the soul to avoid them. But if the gatherings are decent, regular, but you find yourself filled with this envy, you have to do a mental exercise. What if I was the janitor here? And sometimes you go to these big social gatherings and they've got like hired work, workers you know, coming in, cleaning up. Well, what if I was one of them? What if I was just a worker and no one's looking at me, no one's paying any attention. I'm just average, right? Just average. And I'm just a worker. Would your heart be content? We have to learn to find contentment. And that's why I'm saying that the character program that the prophets have given us is really deep. The character program involves deep spirituality that will make you, allow you to be content with the remembrance of Allah and leave off this envy, leave off this trying to be better than everyone else. And what we should love is good work. We should love to do good work. And this is the problem is if contentment allows you and makes you say, okay, you know, I'll just stay home and I'm just content. No, that, that's the opposite extreme, right? You have to be in the middle. You have to love good works. You have to be with the people. You have to do good works and you have to, at the same time, remove this envy from yourself. Remove the envy from yourself and you have to pull it out of yourself by asking ourselves, what if I was the janitor here? Would I be content to be the least of the Muslims in this room? Would I be content that everyone gets looked at except me? Would I be content to have the least impressive family in this room? This is spiritual work, right? And this work over years, okay, it brings a result. In one day, it doesn't bring her, just like lifting weights. But we have to have this, we have to do this work. Right? If we care about our message, then our hearts have to be exemplary and pure, and totally pure, totally clean. Allah does not accept except from the muttaqeen. And Allah does not accept, uh, Allah only accepts from the pure. Allah Allah is, is good and pure. He doesn't accept anything other than the good and the pure. So we have to uh, look at this approach when we're saying the important words and arguments and rebuttals and refutations that we're making. We also have to look at our own hearts. And do we have power issues, control issues, envy issues, hatred issues, attention-seeking issues, all of this, and really... By keeping good company and by doing a lot of dhikr of Allah, Azza wa Jal, these, the filth rises to the top, then you can see it, and then you can scoop it off. Okay? And it's both combinations of keeping the company of the good, of those who are good, all right, of the pure and the seniors who have been working on their souls for a long time, and the senior ulama who've been doing this for 30 and 40 years, and also by regular routine of dhikr. And by the way, you can't just have one, you need both. There are groups out there that do dhikr all the time, right? And it doesn't benefit them anything. In fact, they go further astray and it builds their ego up. Why? Because they never kept the company of mashayikh, of teachers. Okay? The heart, he says, 
is the mine of these things and the abode of effulgence. The face drinks from the water of the heart. Therefore, if the heart has the effulgence of the power of promises and threats, okay, it conveys the same effulgence to the face. So he's saying here that uh, the face of a person really reflects their heart. Okay, The face drinks from the water of the heart. And this is basically taking from Allah's statement, see mahum fi wujuhihim. Their mark is in their faces. Therefore, if your eyes fall on that face, it will remind you of goodness and piety and the awe of righteousness and knowledge of the orders of Allah will have an impact on you. Okay, I think we'll stop here. We'll take a little break and we'll be back shortly. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin Bahri Anwarik Wamadini Asrarik Walisani Hujatik وعروس مملكتك وإمام حضرتك وطراز ملكك وخزائن رحمتك وطريق شريعتك المتلذد بتوحيدك إنسان عين الوجود والسبب في كل موجود عين أعيان خلقك المتقدم من نور ضيائك صلاة تدوم بدوامك وتقى ببقائك لا منتهى لها دون علمك صلاة ترضيك وترضيه وترضى بآعنا يا رب العالمين Assalamu alaikum. I want to tell you a little bit about Tailspun. Tailspun is a technology and design firm focused on providing cost-effective, timely, and quality software development. We design, architect, and build websites, web applications, mobile applications, and offer a number of business and UX consulting services. Every project and every client for us is a story and an adventure. Our goal isn't to tell you which tech we're great at. Our goal is to understand your business, your problems, and your frustrations. And together with the empowerment of technology, we want to write your digital story. Check us out at www.tailspun.co. So if you're looking for awesome software development, whether it's for a personal website or a company web application, give us a call at 856 258 
1-800-242-0791 or email us at info at tailspun.co. That's info at T-A-L-E-S-P-U-N dot co. All right, we're back. Uh, there are a couple of videos that I came across this week that I want to share with everyone. This is a really good one. It actually has some pictures that are really good. It's by Daniel at the Muslim Skeptic on his YouTube channel. It's a really good video. I actually listen to them uh, in fast motion. I listen to all my videos like at 1.25, sometimes 1.5 speed. So we're going to do that here. And Daniel is a very different when he speaks. Uh, he's almost like calm and relaxed. You would never tell that this is the same person that's writing. So some people are like that when they write and then when they speak, they're totally different. So let's have a listen. A lot of people claim that different ideologies are compatible with Islam. They'll say that, for example, social justice activism is compatible with Islam, or feminism, or even veganism, vegetarianism. Uh, all of these claims are made in this day and age where Muslims are trying to hitch their wagon to the trendy or popular ideology that's in vogue today. But how do we evaluate these claims? How can we really understand if these ideologies are truly compatible with Islam? Um, what we need to do is understand the difference between usul and furua. Usul and furua. So what, does, what do these terms mean? Um, so every ideology has this basic structure. And it doesn't have to be an ideology, it can be even uh, religion, it can be a philosophy, but they all share this uh, basic structure of having core principles, usul, and then furua, branching issues, which are secondary or tertiary beliefs or positions. And so you can imagine a tree, and the tree has a trunk, and that, that represents the usul, and then you have branches that branch out, and those, that, those are the furua. So we can understand all ideologies in that way. So how do we compare uh, two ideologies? Well. If you do a comparison and just look at the furor, if you just look at the branch issues, you can find a lot of compatibility. You can find a lot of compatibility between two ideologies when it comes to these secondary and tertiary issues that are found in the branches. Uh, but what about the usul? To really be able to compare uh, two ideologies, you have to see what are the core principles that are at the center of these different ideologies. And so you can, again, diagram this with two trees. Um, you have, uh, for example, Islam and social justice activism. Okay, There's very clearly areas where the two overlap, right? Um, All right, so this is where it actually gets really good. He's got an image here of two trees, and basically you've got uh, your... your, your trunk of the tree and then you got your branches and sometimes the branches can overlap but on the opposite sides of the branches they're not going to overlap and that's basically the image which I've actually tweeted out as well. ...where both uh, Islam and modern-day social justice activism align very clearly um, when it comes to for example police brutality or the criminal injustice system that seems to systematically prey on uh, certain demographics, blacks, Hispanics, um, and other minority groups. 
Um, this is something that we as Muslims need to uh, speak out about because it's clear injustice. And again, this is an area where the uh, furu'a, when it comes to this issue, there's alignment and there's overlap. But what about the usul? What about the usul of social justice activism? And that's where we find problems and dissimilarities. And when it comes to social justice in particular, part of this usul is, for example, um, equal rights regardless of uh, what's considered so, uh, sexual orientation. Right, equal rights regardless of sexual orientation. So based on that asl, there's this idea that um, to be a social justice activist, you have to promote same-sex marriage. Right? And so this is something that is contradictory uh, to Islamic principles, and we would never be able to reach that position through Islamic usul. Okay, and this is very obvious because if we look at uh, Islamic history and we look at usul al-fiqh, we look at usul al-din, we look at what scholars have said in the past and present on this issue, um, same-sex marriage is not something that could ever be sanctioned within an Islamic framework or reached through Islamic usul. Okay, and so this is a much larger discussion, but I, what I want to drive home is this idea of these two trees, okay? And you have some overlap on some branches, but some other branches just cannot be reached um, through the Islamic usul. And so that's what we have to do to really understand the compatibility or incompatibility between two ideologies, is to not uh, get distracted by the similarity in certain furu'a, but actually consider the usul, consider the tree trunks. So another example that we can consider um, is from the past. Um, there used to be Muslims in the past who claimed that Islam is essentially communist and Islam is a communist religion. And again, we see the same pattern of focusing on uh, the branches and ignoring the trunk. And so one of these communist Muslims would say that, well, doesn't Islam encourage us to uh, be charitable in terms of sadaqah, in terms of zakat? So they analogized those concepts, which are clearly a part of Islam, and said that, okay, well, this is very similar to um, what communism calls us to in, in terms of setting up a communist state. Um, an anti-capitalist state. So you find this same pattern. Um, look at feminist Islam. Okay, yeah, there's very clearly overlaps when it comes to uh, respecting women, treating women well. Uh, these are things that Islam endorses and acknowledges and champions. Um, but there are other issues that are very obviously un-Islamic, anti-Islamic, and they stem from difference in usul, right? Because we're looking at two completely different trees, right? Two completely different trees. So um, a good example is recently there was um, a Muslim woman in India who uh, thought that she could lead men in prayer, so she led uh, Friday prayer uh, for a bunch of these confused Muslims. And what she claimed was that Islam has equal roles for men and women. Therefore, it should be valid for a woman to lead Friday prayers and to be in that role of an imam. Okay, so this is an example. She took the idea of equality in role in religion as part of the asl, as part of the usul of Islam. Okay, but that was that's a mistake. That's purely a principle from a feminist paradigm or feminist mindset um, that has been conflated with Islamic usul. And so again, think of the tree. The only way that you can get to this position, this branch of a woman being an imam, a woman leading prayer, a man in prayer, a woman leading Friday prayer, the only way to get to that is from the feminist 
brand, uh, feminist tree from that from that direction. Okay, so this is why it's so dangerous to conflate um, the usul of two different ideologies and, and claim that Islam is uh, feminist, communist, uh, in line with social justice, ideology and activism. Uh, it leads to this kind of confusion and conflation. And you have Muslims who, um, who otherwise are very uh, orthodox and traditional, and they start endorsing these positions that are very un-Islamic. So how do they get to that state? It's because they've started out by mistaking the usul of these other ideologies and thinking that they're Islamic, and then deriving these positions um, that, again, are so far removed from um, the Islamic religion. Um, so this is why we have to be very, very careful. We have to be extremely careful about how we talk about Islam and how we say Islam is compatible or incompatible with different ideologies. To be safe, we should avoid it entirely. There's no need to admix and conflate um, these modern ideologies and try to make this kind of very anachronistic argument that Islam is actually uh, compatible with some ideology that has just been invented uh, or thought up in the last 100 years. Okay? Our deen is uh, 1,400 years old. It doesn't need these additions or it doesn't need the endorsements of these kinds of other philosophies and ideologies. Uh, and so it's best to avoid this confusion and this conflation, and we need to be actually proactive in telling people, look, don't say that Islam is X or Y ideology or compatible with these ideologies because that will lead that leads to confusion and if I you know just think about all the Muslims who get really you know gung-ho and really into um, these different movements and this is not something new. We've seen it throughout history, um, even in the past, uh, when it came to Greek philosophy, for example. That became a fitna. That Greek philosophy was a fitna for the community. And a lot of Muslims were led astray, and they were led into innovation um, because they uh, took that ideology and that system of thought too seriously, and they thought that, yes, this is Islam. Uh, and what they were doing, again, is the same pattern, focusing on the branches and ignoring the usul. Because if you did an actual comparison of the usul, you would see uh, and an honest comparison, you'd see the vast conflict and discrepancy. And then that should tell you that, look, there is incompatibilities here, some important incompatibilities. So why would we want to introduce those kinds of confusions into our understanding of the deen of Allah? Okay, so this is something that we have to avoid uh, and be very cautious about. That doesn't mean we can't learn okay, from other ideologies in the sense that, uh, as the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, wisdom is the lost property of the believer. So if a believer finds wisdom, he has a right to it. Okay, So this is a clear principle, but again, wisdom is a part of Islam. Islam is complete and total. And so things that we find um, that are truly based on our own usul, based on Islamic core principles, we judge are compatible and acceptable to Islam, then yeah, no problem. But that's not what, what happens when people accept um, these other ideologies wholesale and they think that, yeah, well, these are principles that we, we need to adopt. And therefore, their whole paradigm changes, their whole mindset changes in that they then judge Islam and they start looking at Islam through the lens of these usul that are foreign to, it, to Islam.
And that's how you get Muslims who think that women can lead prayer, or Muslims who think that Islam is a communist religion, Muslims who think that Islam endorses same-sex marriage and uh, same-sex behavior. Uh, you even have Muslims who think that Islam is inherently vegan, and therefore they reject the idea of eating meat, they reject the clear sunnah of eating meat, they reject ultira, they reject um, Aqiqa uh, for newborn children. So they reject anything that has to do with eating meat or sacrificing. And so this is leading to leading Muslims astray. Many, many examples of this. And we have to be very cautious and um, concerned about how we portray the deen and how our youth are thinking about Islam. And if we go back to this principle of comparing usul and not being distracted by the furua, that I think is a very helpful device for navigating these questions. Um, so I hope that uh, you agree. If you do, feel free to say so in the comments. If you don't agree, feel free to say so in the comments. Um, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. If you want me to address a specific topic, feel free to say so in the comments as well. And I'll hopefully be speaking to you soon, inshallah. Assalamualaikum. All right. It's a really good video. It's a summary of what we've been talking about for quite a while now, the idea that we have to go back to the usul of things and study our aqidah really deeply, study our usul deeply, and and oftentimes, a lot of times people, they, they're trying to latch on to trends, mainly it's a confidence issue, I really do believe it's a confidence issue, and uh, an ilm issue, if there's ilm, and there's an understanding of what our deen is, and there's no confidence problem, because there are ideas out there that are failing ideas, and no one's jumping all over them. But the ideas that are trendy amongst the people that, you know, maybe a Muslim went to school with, maybe that they try to fit into a certain group and never got a chance to fit in during school, uh, in school, and now as adults, they're able to fit into that type of group through the door of that idea. Oftentimes, confidence issues, I believe, is at the heart of these types of things. And sometimes it's just jahl. But either way, I think it's a matter of uh, mercifully and kindly educating folks and, and spreading the idea that Jan Daniel just uh, put forth. All right, let's shift to something else that I want to share. This is the second video I came upon this week. And as I've said before, I've tried to connect us to uh, some of the sheikhs from older times and also different settings so that we can expand our horizons a little bit. And this is a Sheikh, anyone from Egypt or any of the Arab countries knows very well he died in the 90s. His name is Sheikh Muhammad Mutwali al-Sharawi. He's considered Imam of the Dua. He's considered, he was definitely the most uh, influential of the Dua. His influence reached far and wide. He was also on TV more than any other Arab personality, which is pretty amazing. He was on TV more than actors, presidents. He was on TV, and back in the day, country like Egypt, you had like a national TV station, and you had maybe two other, three other stations, and people pretty much watched the national TV station, the state-run TV station. He was on two times a day. And his class was about 20, 30 minutes, and he was on once in the morning and once in the evening, and millions upon millions of people listen to him. Him and the other is Sheikh Kishk, which one day we'll definitely have to share something from Sheikh Kishk, but I wanted to share this one, which is that the key to nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I'll translate for you. وَحِلَّ تُؤْمِنُ بِهِ ذَلِكَ الْإِيمَانِ يَكُونُ رَدُّ إِذَا حُيِّتُمْ بِتَعْوَبِ يَعَلِّمْنَا 
So he's going to draw an analogy from the command. If you're given a greeting, then greet something with a better greeting, as the Quran says, or an equal greeting. So if someone greets you with something like Assalamu Alaikum, greet them back with Wa Alaikum Assalam or Wa Alaikum Assalam Wa Rahmatullah, something better. Alright, so what he's saying here is when Allah's greatness has reached us, when we responded back with Iman in Him, His response to us was something greater, which is He gave us the control of how we can draw near to Him. And this is something that we believe in, that drawing near to Allah Azza wa Jal is not a game of a lottery, it's not a game of luck, it's not something that we don't know the path to, it is a science and it is something that if you plug in certain deeds, if you plug in certain actions, you're going to get a reward. And it's a big difference between Allah's love and our love. Uh, love between human beings is something that is flighty, it's whimsical. Someone can do so much good to you, but something inside you just doesn't like him. And someone could do so much bad to you, but you just tolerate and tolerate, and you love, you enjoy tolerating. You just enjoy everything that comes from them. You just love them so much that you tolerate. So that's human human love. Human love is completely uh, whimsical and unpredictable. However, divine love is in a sense mathematical. If you plug in the hours, you're going to get his love back. He says it's in, it's completely in, in our hands. And one of the proofs is, Allah's statement, remember me and I remember you. So therefore, if we want to draw near, it's we have to take the action. And once we take the action, we can be certain that a result will come out of that. He said, just by virtue of, of believing, in other words, you believe properly, you believe fully in Allah, now the key to drawing near to Him is in your hands. He says, if you want me, if Allah is basically telling us, if you want me to remember you, then you just remember me. Also, if you want victory, give victory to Allah and Allah will give victory to you. And this is why if you look at the trajectory of civilizations and nations, nations go up very slowly by their own power and it takes a lot of things that are out of their hands completely. To, to get victory. And you notice the trajectory of, of various ideologies, various peoples, ethnicities, they go very slowly up. Okay, they rise very slowly. However, if you look at uh, the past Ummah of Iman, whether it be Prophet Dawood whether it be the Prophet Muhammad they go up in one generation. Is that they reach the, 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 they break through immediately in one quick generation. Reason being is that the mu'mineen, they have Allah with them. Those other faiths, Allah, those, those other uh, pagans or what have you, whatever they are, Allah tells us that the Prophet ﷺ says, then Allah leaves them to their own strength. If they have the strength to rise up, then they rise. If they don't, then they don't. And now he cites the hadith. 
My servant continues to draw near to me with nothing better than obligatory uh, acts of worship. And then if he continues with supererogatory, then I, uh, he'll, he continues with these supererogatory until I love him. Then he says, if now if uh, my servant comes close to me, a hand span, I come close to him, a, an arm span. And if, I, and if he comes walking, I come to him, running. So basically, everything is in the hands. Unlike humans, where if you want to draw near to someone, it's extremely difficult. It's based upon their themselves, and it's based on their whims, and it's based on every all their limitations. But in this case, draw near to Allah is completely different. It's uh, completely in our hands. He's basically saying, he's citing the hadith, if you want to come to Allah hand span, then he'll come to you in arm span. And he said, even if he wants, you want Allah to run to him. He will run to you, you just walk. And Allah is basically saying that the honor of some of ta'a, the honor of worship, is that you come, you're coming slower than he's coming. Yeah, he is coming to you faster than you're coming. You're base, he's ba Allah is basically telling you, you stay there and I'm coming to you. He's basically telling you and giving an example. He said, uh, oftentimes you see two people, one of them totally honors the other. As soon as he sees him coming to him, the other comes running to him. He actually, human beings do this. So he's giving an analogy of that. He is talking about now people in this life that they have something that you need in life. You have to ask to meet them. You have to go through hassles, jump through hula hoops to get to them. And at the end of the day, there's no guarantee on the result. So on the secondly, if they do meet you, they're gonna set down what what, what the discussion is. So what are we gonna talk about? And they're gonna talk, and they're gonna set on you how much you're gonna talk. How how long is this meeting gonna be? And they're gonna talk about the location. You gotta meet me in this place or that place. And they're gonna decide when this meeting is over. As soon as a person who's influential, any powerful person, stands up in a meeting, that's a single a signal. Meeting's over. Even if you didn't finish what you had to say. So that's human to human interactions. And at the end of all that, with all the conditions he put, he still may or may not accept what you have to say.
ان ما قبلش انتهينا خلاص ونقبل يحدد الموضوع هتتكلم في ايه يا سيدي طب والزمان والمكان وينهي المقابله لا حبنا مشكله بقى الله سبحانه وتعالى از اكزاكت ولذلك انا قلت لكم اذكروا جيدا حسب نفسي عزا and he has a poem here حسب نفسي عزا which means it's enough glory and honor for me so the worship of Allah and our slavehood to Allah is actually honor the more we engage in it the more we're actually honoring ourselves unlike slavery to human beings which is lowering ourselves uh, he said it's enough glory and honor for myself that I'm an abd or a servant a lord I'm a servant to a Lord who takes me and accepts me without appointments. He says, meaning in his sanctity, in his holiness, he's more majestic. However, I set the meeting for uh, I meet him whenever and wherever I wish. You want to meet him? You want to speak to him in the masjid? It's in the masjid. You want to remember him in the house? It's in the house. In the house, you feel like in the street. You need to make salah and you stop and pray. You can do so. And I can speak to him with whatever subject I want. I used to know a man, I used to work with a man when I was working in a selling hamburgers and, and whatnot on the on the boardwalk. I used to know work with a man who had he, he was in a he came from America he came to America from Egypt. He was one of these guys that really didn't have any connection to Dean. He was from a really rich family. And he came to America and he was young and he was doing all sorts of stuff, messing around. Nothing really he keep might pop into the masjid once in a while. He got really sick and he got sickness after sickness and the sickness was in his brain. And so slowly his entire life just literally came to a halt. He must have still only been 35, 38 when I was working with him and he only had use of one hand. Half of his face was uh, no longer functioning. And he basically had no friends, nothing. All he would do is come to the masjid, come pray Aisha, smile at everyone, go home. He basically having nothing in life, barely hanging on by a thread. I asked him one day, what does he do all day? And he said, I just talk to Allah. No, there's nothing else for him to do. And he was saying it so naturally. He wasn't like educated in Dean. He wasn't, there's not something that he thought out. He said, I literally, there's nothing else for me to do. So he just talks to Allah all day. And after this, he says, Allah Azza wa Jal never gets bored with us and our ibadah until we get bored. SubhanAllah. If someone ever wonder, you know, if it does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when is it, why so much? As long as we're feeling it, then Allah is loving it. And as soon as we're getting bored of our ibadah, then Allah doesn't no longer want to receive it. And this is why you should never force worship. You should force a little bit, 
a little bit, you should force to, to make a habit out of it. But once it becomes something, it's got to come from your heart. It's got to come from yourself. However, there is an importance of training. That's why we mentioned the word riyadah before, which is training, where we're training ourselves to have sabr with ibadah. Because the sabr is of four types. The sabr of temptation, sabr for, uh, and avoiding them, sabr on calamities that occur, sabr on doing the good, Okay, uh, on the, the, the good that comes. And what is the fourth type of sabr? Sabr on calamities. Sabr on avoiding temptations. Sabr on... SubhanAllah, what's... The third one is... I think there are three or four. The, the third one, at least the one on, on my mind, is the sabr on doing the good. Okay, being patient in doing the good. And this, at some point, what we said we have to have sessions where we sort of force ourselves to sit down with our hifz of Qur'an, sit down with our dhikr, sit down with our istighfar. We have to force it, but that's it. Just little periods of time. Because once you start hating it and you're forcing yourself, you might actually backfire and it's no good. <laughs> Allah doesn't have appointments he's not busy he's not some people think oh I can't bring this subject up because you know Allah is busy you know, dealing with world politics this is silly uh, the Prophet ﷺ tells us make istikhara prayer even if you're going to buy shoelaces a sandal strap right so make istikhara and ask Allah even if you're going to buy a sandal strap and istikhara is something that many people misunderstand. Many people think istikhara is only for if I'm actually unsure. I don't know if I want to do this or do that. I'm unsure. Do istikhara and then Allah will help me make sure. No, istikhara also involves that you you know exactly what you're going to do, but the istikhara makes it more clear and easier. And if it's actually not good for you, then Allah will send things to obstruct it and make it more difficult. So istikhara is not just if I'm unsure, it's also if you are sure to make it, to speed it up and to make it easier. Or if it's actually the wrong decision, if you came to the wrong decision, then to put an obstacle there and make it known to you that it's the wrong decision. So now he brings us that the Prophet peace be upon him, he was educated by Allah Azza wa and as a result his behavior is similar. What he does, the Prophet peace be upon him, when he used to shake a, a man's hand, he never turns his hand, he pulls his hand away until that person pulls his hand away. So now you realize that the worship of Allah is not a slavehood that lowers you. It's a slavehood that raises you up. This is the big difference. So now he's saying this followership is not the followership of someone that's going to be used. Rather, this is following someone so that that person can give you. Okay, Just like someone says, follow me so I can give you something. So he's saying the followership of Allah Azza wa Jal. And when we follow the Prophet, peace be upon him, it's to lead us to a water. It's to lead us to what we want and what's going to benefit us. Not to lead us to go work. 
followership so that you can get exact opposite of human use when humans take slaves they suck the blood of the of their slave and their worker all right and as a result people hate this uh, hierarchical relationship and this is why Europe is is leading the way in destroying all these hierarchic relationships because of what they saw of the classes mainly in England and in other places the monarchies established these hierarchical classes where you couldn't move up and down you couldn't there was no idea the concept that one day you could be rich and inheritance law has a lot to do with this when you look at when you look at how the British uh, had their, their House of Lords, it's that all the wealth went to one son, the first son. And that's what allowed for generation after generation the amassment of exorbitant amounts of wealth. But if you look at Sharia, what it does is it tries to promote a middle class. How does it do that? By breaking up, by constantly breaking up uh, wealth. Through inheritance, so when you when when a rich man dies, he's going to leave off maybe one or a couple rich people from his inheritors, but also a lot of middle class people or lower upper class people. Because when you look at the way inheritance is distributed, it's going to be broken up, and there are only very few cases in which a, a lot a, a large proportion of the inheritance is going to go down. For example, a man who has one wife and one son, that son is going to take. Pretty much almost all of it, seven-eighths. But the most cases, you're going to have the wealth divided up. So it breaks up these upper classes. That's the purpose behind it. So in this, in this case of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is the abd who takes the benefit from the master. Allah is not benefiting anything from us, nor does he want anything from us. This is a relationship of pure generosity. And, and I actually teach this and when I teach refutate or uh, what I call the SMR vaccine, vaccine against secularism and moral relativism, which I'm producing right now as we speak, that's going to be published and spread around the web uh, for everyone to use. That when we look at, when we talk about that we turn to Allah for, rule, for our guidance and we turn to Allah for law and we don't turn to other... Uh, ideologies and ideas for these laws and for these rules one of the wisdoms behind this is that to know that Allah is leading us to something that benefits us he's not leading us to he has no benefit from us and he's the entire creation with all of its all of its details is made for one purpose and that is a simple purpose that Allah Azza wa has love and he is sharing it with us as human beings he created us he created the jinn and he created the malak and he created the mountains and the sun and everyone and everyone had a situation and was given a choice it was the human being of the of all the angels and the mountains and the sun and the moon and the earth and all these things it was a human being who took on the risk to either have to disobey and go away and go into darkness or to go into the highest heights of love. So what is the difference between our love of Allah and the angels' love? Is that our love is all based upon choices. And it's it's more real, it's more authentic, and it's more substantial because our love is by choice. And not only choice, like you give me three pies and I picked yours. No, hard choices. Choices that require sacrifice. Choices that require that have difficulty. Choices that where we're pushing off 
temptations that are you almost die that to to to, to, to giving up these temptations as the prophet said and said you have like having a coal in your hand it's like it's like almost impossible to resist these temptations but you come upon and you keep asking yourself what exactly what is my priority in life and return to the fact that you choose Allah over your temptations and so you lock these things out and likewise there is truth and there's a path to truth in which you can have to die and sacrifice your life and people choose to do so. No other creation can do this. So all of the animals are in a perfect state of harmony. All the trees and the plants are, and the malaika are in perfect states of harmony. The difference between animals, plants, of course, is that animals have life. Plants have life but no movement. Rocks basically have no life. They're jamad. They do have con a type of spiritual consciousness, but for all tense, or for our purposes, they have no life. Angels have a soul. That's the difference between an angel and an animal. That angels have uh, a ruh, and the human being has all of that, but has as well a nafs, and he has irada, free will. All right, the ability to choose, that's the difference between us and angels. Angels have ruh, and they have intellect, and they have, they're able to talk, and they have free will, but within limited bounds. Angels are not robots. They do have, they know who they are, they know what we are, they know what they're doing, they ask questions, they think, they discuss things, they have conversations, but they have a limit in that their creation cannot possibly disobey Allah There's no mechanism inside them to do that. So our love, when we come to Allah, is through hula hoops, through fires, over mountains, okay, through valleys, and we arrive at his love, and no other creation does this. And the jinn, Ibn Abbas said, their intellects are weaker than the, and I don't want to insult the jinn, because some of the jinns are believing jinn, but this is the nature, the difference between the humans and the jinn is in knowledge. And the jinn, their nature is, they have power over the human beings from the aspect that they, they can move instantaneously from place to place. They have no difficulty in movement. Their constitution is superior than our constitution. They're made of smokeless fire, and smokeless fire is, is superior to mud. We're made of earth and mud, so we are, we're weighed down, we're slower. However, a human being has a capacity of intellect that the jinn doesn't have. Because they're made of smokeless fire, their mood and their whim overtakes their intellect. Okay, without putting down uh, our, our friends and brothers from the believing jinn, because we know that in Surah Al-Jinn, jinn came around the Prophet, peace be upon him, believed in him, loved him, and followed him, and fought alongside him. And we know that in every masjid that there are jinn praying as well. And some people say they come in after Salat al-Isha and they pray. So jinns don't equate jinns with demons. There are from amongst the jinn, and a lot of the jinn, uh, demons, but not all jinn are demons. There are believing jinn. So the point being is that it's not it's not about jinn. The point here is the difference between the human being and the love that he's going to attain to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala through all the challenges. And that's why we should feel honored when we when Allah is telling me telling us. I'm telling you, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. He's not burdening us for a reason. He's showing when Allah says don't, He's saying don't harm yourself. And when he's saying do, he says do take this benefit. This is how we have to understand the do's and don'ts of the sharia so that we can love it. And as Daniel said, we don't need to look at another ideology. And if another ideology sparks within us, 
something that was sort of had fallen asleep in our communities. That's fine. No problem. It doesn't make a difference who does it. We even have lessons from Iblis. And, and the Prophet Sallallahu said, he says the truth, he, he told the truth at a certain moment, and he's a liar. Like what? The, the time that Abu Huraira was told to guard the, the little building that had the food in it and the wealth and the zakah. And Abu Huraira was in the month of Ramadan and Abu Huraira was guarding it. And an old man came and started stealing from the zakah. And Abu Huraira caught him. And he said, just, just have, uh, uh, forgive me one, this one time. I have children and I have to support them and I just needed some food. So Abu Huraira felt bad, so he let him go. Second night, he did the same thing. And he, he said, oh, please, just, I'm just an old man and I have all these responsibilities and I needed some food. So he let him go. On the third night, he said, this is it. I'm not letting you go anymore. I'm, gonna, I'm taking you to the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he said to him, okay, can you just let me go? I'll, t I'll teach you one thing if you let me go. He said, fine, what is it? So it goes to show you how much they valued knowledge, right? This man's stealing from Zakah, but Abu Huraira is saying, well, if I could learn something, I'll let him go. He told him, if any Muslim recites Ayatul Kursi before sleeping, no shaitan will come near to him until the morning. So he let him go. The next day, Prophet ﷺ said to Abu Huraira, Abu Huraira, who was it? Who was there that came to you these last few nights? He said, an old man came and this happened and this happened. And then he told me this, said that Ayatul Kursi, if I recite it before sleeping, no shaitan will touch me. Prophet ﷺ said, Sadaqaka wa huwa kathub. He said the truth in this moment, and he's a liar. He said, oh, Abu Huraira, do you know who was visiting you? It was shaitan. So if shaitan can stimulate an idea, and if, if, the, if a feminist movement can stimulate an idea, yeah, fine, you can stimulate an idea, but the actual guidance, we have it. We don't need to, to actually get the details and to follow you and to follow another system, okay? With all our respect to those people, okay? Likewise, the health movement. You can... It stimulates a lot of good for all, a lot of us, right? It stimulates, like the fitness movement, it stimulated a lot of good for a lot of us. But we're going to weigh things out. We're not going to be jogging in gyms and doing all these things with, with, with other naked people, unless you're doing it in a way that's, that's fine. That's one thing. But we're not going to go to the, to, we're not going to copy everything they do, right? We have, we have nothing, Kalas. We have no confidence in ourselves and no self-worth and no idea that, no idea that what we have is enough. Does a human being think that he's going to be left with nothing? Right? Does a human being think that he's going to be left without guidance? We have a guidance on everything. We have a sunnah on everything. And it's all right if outside groups simulate something within us so that we could sort of adopt that uh, to the within the parameters of our sunnah. And we don't even need to use their language. We don't need to use anything. We should be authentic. And I'm telling you, most of this stuff, most of the imitation that people do, it's not because they're bad people. It's that, honestly, I really think they were left out in school and something really deep in the intellects of a lot of brown Muslims is that they just never really could be accepted in the white circle of friends to the degree that they really wanted to. And this stayed inside of them. And I, you can't psychologize people, but I'm just saying that's a feeling that I get that a lot of times it's like, why are you so excited about this or that? It's no big deal. Don't you have anything from yourself? Like, you, wouldn't you be more proud of your, your, your parents, your family's heritage, right? 
and then whatever you're going to adopt, adopt it genuinely because you like it yourself, not because of, uh, it just seems so artificial and it seems that it's based on an inferior complex. And I don't mean to insult people by that, but that's really the feeling that I get from people. All right, let's pause there and take another break. Are you looking to better groom your beard? Elegance Beard is a Canadian company that offers natural beard care products since 2015 and that's now trusted by many bearded men all over the world. All their products are 100% natural without any chemical ingredients. They have all what your beard needs. For more information, visit elegancebeard.com. All right, we're back and let's shift a little bit back to some worldly issues here. There's something called the Muslim News. I never heard of it until recently. Apparently, it's actually pretty pretty big and, and pretty good as well. It's based on the UK, muslimnews.co.uk. And from the spirit of uh, whosoever doesn't care about the Muslims is not one of them, or the affairs of the Muslims. So I'm looking here, and this is actually pretty interesting. It's, it's a really big website and got a ton of stuff going on here. So let's take a look at the Americas. If you go in, you go to latest news, you go down to the Americas, let's see what's going on here. U.S. federal judge blocks anti-Israel state law. All right. Canada marks anniversary of the Quebec mosque murders. That's good. Canada, Toronto, Muslim schoolgirl attacked, hijab cut with scissors. That's horrible. U.S. increases cargo screening for five Muslim countries. All right. I have the right to do that, I guess. U.S. study finds Trump Muslim ban shifted public opinion. Okay, let's see how it shifted public opinion. And they actually write the story, too, it looks like. Are they, are they taking the story from... Oh, it's from AA, which is, I think, the... Uh, what are the news outlets? All right, and they give you the story here, and you can comment, whatever. Saudi conveys U.S. plan... I don't want to hear anything about Saudi... U.S. New York Muslim police officers harassed with hate messages. Horrible. This is like a trail of bad news here. Come on. Canadian Muslim group wants a day of remembrance. Right. U.S. mosque leaders help man who defaced their building. All right. That's, that's how Muslims would do it. I mean, uh, we don't respond to bad with the bad or respond to bad with the good. U.S. New York attack suspects family uh, New York attacks suspects family outraged by police actions. What did the police do? The family of the 27-year-old suspect in a New York bombing said late Monday they are outraged by the police response following the attack. We are heartbroken by the violence that was targeted at our city today and by the allegations being made against a member of our family. The family said in a statement read by their care. Care is the Council of American Islamic Relations. But we also are outraged by the behavior of the law enforcement officials who have held children as small as four years old out in the cold who pulled a teenager out of high school class to interrogate him without a lawyer, without his parents. Well, that's really wrong. The family added, these are not the sorts of actions we expect from our justice system, and we have every confidence that our justice system will find truth behind this attack and that we will, in the end, be able to learn what occurred today. It is not clear if the statement referring to the children who are part of the family or other non-family members, uh, Akaedullah, 
is in custody after the attempted terrorist attack rocked the busy New York Port Authority subway station. The explosion occurred in heavily traffic. This, of course, happened uh, about a month ago. I can't even remember the... There's so many incidents you can't even remember anymore. And then Trump went off on it, so they went after the kids, and that's what they're complaining about, which is obviously a rightful complaint. And Ullah, his name is his last name is Ullah. Interesting. Is reportedly from Bangladesh. Where else is going to come with a name like Ullah? That's that's basically their who, who when the British came and gave names out, they broke up the Idafas. So you end up with people whose last name is Ullah. So for maybe his first name would be let's say this guy his name is Aqaidullah. Aqaid and his last name is Ullah. So all the Idafa constructs the British broke them up. So Najmud Din, for example, Najmud Din becomes Najmud, Najmul. His first name is Najmul, and his last name is uh, Din or Udin, right? So that's basically the legacy of the the British who wrote these spellings out and didn't really understand the nature of these Zidafa constructs. All right, blah blah blah. The rest of his us. Trump said this, and the lawyer said that. U.S. President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem. Okay, this is old. All right, it's interesting. Let's let's see about the about England. We got a lot. Of, we get a lot of listens from England. See the news here. France vandalized mosque in Bordeaux. Sweden. Swedish clothing brand H and M apologizes for the name Allah writing on socks. All right, so let's check that out. This happened before on sneakers, way back when I was a young kid. Stockholm, the Swedish clothing brand H and M, apologized for allegedly having a pattern resembling the word Allah written in Arabic on children's socks. So the sock here is a blue sock with a Lego robot. Uh, this Lego robot looks like he's a construction worker and he's drilling in the street or something and what he's drilling looks exactly like the word Allah with the ha open. So the local media reported this. The pattern on the children's sock ignited uproar amongst customers in the country, Swedish state-run radio SVT reported. In a statement, H&M claimed they did not use the word Allah, but apologized for the resemblance. The company announced that all socks have been recalled from markets. On January 8th, the company had also apologized for an online advertisement featuring a black child modeling a sweatshirt reading, Coolest Monkey in the Jungle. All right, you need to get a clue if you're, if you're making shirts like that. Davos, Trump signals tremendous increase. Nobody cares. Germany... Vice President of Far-Right Anti-Islam. Okay, this guy who converted to Islam. I think we all heard this, but this is an article worth reading. So this party, this is in Berlin. A local politician from the Far-Right, Alternative for Germany, name of the party, has converted to Islam, media reports on Tuesday. Arthur Wagner, the AFD's Vice President in the... This actually website's becoming a lot of fun. AFD's... Vice President in the Eastern Haviland District declined to make a comment on his decision. His name is Arthur Wagner. It is a private matter. The 48-year-old politician told uh, Der Spiegel, the news, uh, Der Spiegel newspaper. The AFD adopted explicitly anti-Islamic rhetoric and argued that Germany was under the threat of Islamization, especially after nearly one million refugees. 
from Syria and Iraq arrived in the country in 2015. Wagner confirmed that he recently resigned from the AFD's board in the federal state of uh, Brandenburg, but argued it was not because of his religious affiliation. There was no pressure. It has not changed anything, he told the newspaper. Wagner, a German of Russian origin, had been a representative of the AFD since 2015. He was a member of the state committee with responsibility for churches and religious communities. Before joining the anti-Islam, anti-immigration party, he was a member of German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Angela, or Angela, I guess I'm supposed to say, Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats. The far-right anti-Islam AFD party, okay, blah, blah, blah. I, I want, we want to see what he said. He basically said nothing. He said religion is a private matter, but ultimately it's confirmed. It argued that increasing number of Muslims in the country was a danger to the German state, and that's basically the, the party is one of those far-right parties. And it is confirmed that the guy, Arthur Wagner, did become Muslim, but there's no real story behind it because there's no commentary there's no press conference there's not even a backlash or anything at least from this article so that was a good piece of news all right let's see what's next italy muslim trainee lawyer humiliated over ejection from court due to the hijab We are in the belly of the beast. I mean, when you come living in Europe and America, yeah, the stuff is going to happen. All right, this Moroccan-born Muslim trainee lawyer said Monday she felt humiliated after a judge ejected her last week from an administrative court in northern Italy for refusing to remove her headscarf. Well, wouldn't they have that law be? Wouldn't that law be known? At a hearing, regional administrative. That's the question. Let's see if they're going to answer it. Because if that's the law, shouldn't that be known before she? you know, gets the job and goes in there. At a hearing in Regional Administrative Court in Bologna, Asma Belfaqir, 25, was asked by the judge, Mozzarelli, you gotta be kidding me, that's really his name, Giancarlo Mozzarelli, to either remove, not to making fun, but I mean, you know, when you're reading like a, an Italian name and his name is like a cheese, it's just sort of like cartoonish, almost like a characteristic, but of course we're not making fun of his name or anything. It's a great name. Italian names are the best. You have to admit that. Giancarlo Mozzarelli. It's a great name. To either remove her headscarf or leave the courtroom. I entered the courtroom with all the other lawyers involved in that case. The judge started to say, can you remove? He didn't even say hijab and wasn't looking at me. I thought he just wanted someone to remove their coat. I couldn't have imagined he was talking to me. Then I looked him in the eyes and realized I was upset. And I said, finishing the sentence, the hijab, Belfakir said in an interview. Immediately after he said, yes, if you want to stay in this courtroom, you must remove it. And she said, I'm not going to remove it. I'm going out. Well, good for her. Right? Well, that's what she's supposed to, that's what she's supposed to do. She's a good example. She said that while she was opening the door, he said to the audience, yes, that's because of the respect of our culture and traditions. What are you talking about? The Virgin Mary's wearing hijab in every building in Italy. Hearing a judge speaking of culture and tradition in that context made me feel really bad. Listen, I have no problem if they put the law out there, right? That's their country. They could do what they want. But be consistent, apply it to everyone, right? But is, wouldn't they have, wouldn't that be a law? All right. Hearing a judge speaking of culture, blah, 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 made me feel really bad. I was just there to learn a job, to understand how the law should be applied. Okay, she's a, she's a trainee, so she's not even like really an employee, but there should be a rule. I wasn't there to be humiliated because of my religion. I heard a lot of things about that judge, his modus operandi and his personal thoughts. 
Balfakir said, I'm pretty sure he would never have asked a nun to remove her veil. I'm like, I can guarantee you that. And I'm quite sure because a nun is not insulting his culture as I did by wearing the scarf. Balfakir said, the judge should have known why she was wearing a scarf and that it was not affecting the judicial hearing or her skills as a trainee lawyer. In this case, the law should protect people and their freedom of religion as it is not affecting in a negative way the others, no matter how difficult it gets. Listen, I'm not going to go on saying you know, using these uh, types of human rights uh, philosophy of things, but if the country has a law, then we're going to respect it either way. If it doesn't have a law, then either make one or recant what he did. In this case, the law should protect people and their freedom. Denouncing the... Dis now, what we want to see is what did the other Italian authorities say. That's what's important. Denouncing the decision, the Association of Muslims of Bologna uh, said there is no law prohibiting a hijab in court. Right? The Association of Young Italian Lawyers also denounced, now that's what I wanted to get to, the judge's decision as inconceivable and contrary to the principles of the Constitution. And you see, this is a judge who's probably like an old man and he's just had enough with all these immigrants but the law does not side with him on this case. The most incredible thing in this case is that Asma al-Faqib's thesis concerned women's bodies and Islamic law. According to Luigi Fafani, I'm telling you, you really can't make these names up. I mean, they're so beautiful. They're almost like someone made them in a, you know, when they make these movies, right? And they're trying to make the most cartoonish characteristic names. I and mean, it's such a beautiful name. Luigi Fafani, let's see what he said. The Dean of Law, at the University of Modena and Reggio Emilia, where Belfakir graduated in a master's degree in law, considers the refusing her to work with the hijab by Judge Mozzarelli severely discriminatory and contrasts with, contrasts with constitutional principles to which we must constantly inspire ourselves in the exercise of our functions. Listen, this is very important. I don't believe in a universal, everyone is equal, and there should be no laws. I don't believe in those things, right? We have a religion, we have our own law. If these Western countries want Muslims to be out, don't wear hijab, don't, listen, make the law. All right, make a law and apply it fairly to everyone. You want to make a law just for Muslims, make a law just for Muslims, right? And at least let us know what the law is. All right, because the, the idea of universal human rights and Muslims are going to latch onto that and say, you know, we need to have, uh, we need to we need to push this universal human rights. And wait, wait a second, that's exactly what Daniel was saying. That idea comes from a certain foundation, certain usul. We don't agree with that usul to begin with. Okay, but at least just let us know what the law is. And Canada really should just let us know because they are so liberal. They should just make secular humanism their state religion so that we know what to, what to expect in the future and there's no culture war. In any event, uh, an application of an alleged prohibition to attend a hearing with the head covered, probably non-existent within the administrative jurisdiction. All right, so Belfakir was allowed to work in another court in Bologna wearing her hijab. Additional report by the Muslim News. So the Muslim News actually did some of their own reporting there. All right, nice report. This is actually getting fun. Let's see what else is next. Macron urges, this is France now, Macron urges dialogue with Iran slams strong rhetoric. Not interested. Sweden, police investigate Swedish mosque bomb attack as a hate crime. 
May Allah be with those people, but I'm not interested in the story. Austria, education minister to ban hijab for school teachers. All right? See, again, it's going to sound bad, but if on what basis are these countries established? On what basis are we going to argue back? Right? The only basis that we can argue back is the idea of universal human rights. And I'm telling you, that's going to lead us to a collision course down the road because we can't be consistent with our deen and the universal human rights at the same time. And my whole argument against uh, arguing back Jonathan Brown was about the same idea. So listen, in my opinion is, if, you want to, if that's what the people of, this, of the country want, that's what, that's what their, their ruling class wants to do. I'm willing to follow all the rules of the land. I'll leave if I have to. That's my take on things. Okay, and I—I I mean, logically speaking, when we do the full, uh, go to the logical extension thing, you're going to realize the only way to argue, no, this is illegal, is through this idea of universal human rights. If you're playing that game, you're going to have to argue to support things that are prohibited in Islam. So you can't have it both ways. Right? I would rather not go that route at all and simply say, listen, you people make your laws. I'm conceding this. I'm conceding legislation that I can't have an argument in, in legislation. Okay? I can't have an argument in legislation. You legislate and then we'll see what's going to happen. You know what? I don't even want to read this. I'm just so, so much bad news. It's always just some negative thing. Uh, so much of this website, unfortunately, I mean, it's not their fault, but it's just all, you know, uh, bad news. So, I guess we'll just take a look at it. Recent remarks by Austria's newly appointed education minister, Heinz Fassmann, against the headscarf, have raised concerns for Muslims living in the country. Probably, again, another, another old man who's just tired of all the change. Think about it. These old people, they grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and it was just them and all people just like them, ethnically... Uh, homogeneous and now they're just their birth population went downhill Muslim immigration skyrocketed Muslim birth rates skyrocketed and now all these European countries these old men are just they don't know they don't recognize their own countries anymore that's the problem all right and it's, it's your basic usual suspect type of uh, back and forth Sweden mosque vandalized with swastika. That's, that's a, a vandal who doesn't know what he's doing at that point. To vandalize a mosque with a swastika is something someone who, who's got his, he needs to take a couple history lessons. Netherlands. All right. News from the Netherlands. Allows police officers to wear headscarves in certain positions. Okay, good. OSCE. I don't know what that is, but 6,000 hate crime incidents reported in Europe 2016 all right United Nations 100 migrants die wow this is just like a series of unfortunate events this website okay let's go to another continent maybe let's go to Africa they got they got I mean they must have a really huge team here right gathering all these most of these are associated press I believe but I mean like copy and pasting but still Nigeria. Nigerian Muslim women decry discrimination. In their own country, it's a Muslim country. I mean, yeah, discrimination's everywhere. All right. Mali, 28 killed in two separate attacks. This is a mahzana. You know, mahzana is like a constant, it's a sa, uh, 
Just everything is bad and sad. Uh, Egypt, 10 killed in Cairo, church attack by Daesh. Libya, 64 migrants feared dead. You know, this type of thing is going to get you, you know. Nigerian parliament probes lawyers hijab ban case. Another. It's either someone is dying in a war, refugees, or Muslims convicted of doing something, or hijab bans. That's the three types of news. We haven't seen... Let's just wait. Let's read 10 news stories and see if any of them fall outside this category of either some kind of war where Muslims are victims, some kind of war where Muslims are perpetrators, or a hijab ban. All right, here we go. Nigeria. Twin suicide bombings killed 13 in northeast Nigeria. One down, nine to go. Somalia. Suicide attack at police academy kills 10. Two down, eight to go. Libya, 31 refugees drown off Libyan coasts. Three down, seven to go. U.S. denies allegations of civilian killings in Somalia. Four down, six to go. Egypt, 85 killed from bomb explosions. These are Muslim countries, too. Eight, uh, the, the five, five down, five to go. This one is about the bombing of Friday prayer. Egypt, death toll from Sinai Mosque. Six down, four to go. Let's go to another continent. Let's pick a random continent here. Let's go to Russia. All right. All right, Russia. Russia, half of Russians oppose school headscarf ban. Seven down, three to go. Russia, Mordovia bans student teachers from wearing hijab. I'm telling you, it's, it's, two, it's three subjects. It's violence or hijab bans. That's it. Turkey, Russia in to coordinate air operations in Syria. War. U.S. Putin not war criminal. Oh, that has nothing to do with it. Turkey, Russia agreed to nationwide Syria ceasefire bid. Again. Okay. It's either violence or it's a hijab ban. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Let's just go to another continent just for the sake of it. Africa. Far East. All right. Far East. Let's see what's going on here. Philippines. Moro group forms alliance against Daesh. We're beyond 10. Right. This is all like weather. They had a, some kind of tornado. They got a typhoon. None of this is like uh, Islamic stuff. Okay. Or directly related. China. Media. Five dead in attack in Xinjiang. Philippines. Twelve hurt in a blast during Christmas Eve. Australian politician targets Muslims on parliamentary return. I can guarantee you in this article, like 90% chance there's going to be something about the hijab. All right, a divisive right-wing politician. Again, same thing. It's the same group, right-wing politicians all over the place because I'm telling you, they grew up and everyone down the street was white just like them and now their streets are all brown. It's the same thing and now they're having a nervous reaction. Here we go. Hanson's party, the lady's name is Hanson, I guess. Wants Muslim immigration to cease. Construction of new mosques to be banned, along with the wearing of the burqa and the and niqab in public places. Okay? It's the same news. I mean, you could make up these stories and just put them in there and no one will know as long as you put in either something about violence or something about hijab ban. All right, so that's this website. Let's see, they got other things, human rights. They got other tabs, Ramadan, press releases, newspapers. They got a newspaper. All right, let's go to the awards section, see if that's any good. 
they have a gala dinner in England. I wonder if the brothers out there in England know who these, these people are. They're giving awards out. All right. They got a ton of videos here. Um, so our Beacon Awards scheme, we've been um, running that now for one year, but the education program has been running for about three years now. And alhamdulillah, we've worked with over 5,000 young Muslims who've actually learnt about issues to do with global injustice. So things like t trade, um, trade justice, fair trade, workers' rights, um, looking at the poverty line and a few other things. And um, after learning about those issues, they've also been learning how to campaign as well. So the aim is to learn about these topics and then to take it forward um, through campaigning and try and change things from the root causes but again that requires education so alhamdulillah we would definitely take it out to other schools and um, we've actually been quite successful in this alright I mean they got a lot of videos here I don't know who these folks are I, uh, nothing ringing a bell from my day in England but really interesting website and it's good to touch base on what's going on but really well, I mean, what's the point if everything that's going on is either going to be some violent thing or Hijab bands. That's really all it is. Oh, look at this. I'm telling you, you cannot make this stuff up. UK, McDonald's asks Muslim woman to remove headscarf. Unbelievable. Next case, Myanmar Suki stripped of Oxford honor due to atrocities against Rohingya Muslims. UK, 14-year-old boy stabbed outside mosque in Birmingham in critical condition. Uh, we're, we're going on like 15 straight here. And then you have some of the parliamentary giving aid messages. US Muslim, UK Muslim victim said acid attack was Islamophobia. All right. I'm done with this. Let's wrap up our episode. It was interesting. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wal asr inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa aminu salihat. Wa tawasubu al-haq. Wa tawasubu al-sabr. Assalamu alaikum wa Oh